car enthusiasts and the people who love them. Hello, this is The Thing About Cars. Thank you for joining us. We are recording, as always, in Strongbox West in Atlanta. Today, around the table, we have... Andrew. Ben. Becca. And I'm Mickey. Andrew, we keep neglecting to ask you, you've got a ton of followers on your YouTube channel. How do people find you? How do you get so many followers? Uh, well, actually, I really don't know how I got that many followers, but they can find me on YouTube at Grumpy Monkey Garage on YouTube. You can look up any of our viewers. We do post some updates as well. Very cool. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's where I am. But how do I got so many followers? I guess people just like the content. It actually started out as a liability thing to be filming all of my repairs so that when people would come out, oh, that scratch wasn't there. Well, I videotaped everything I did on your car and I wasn't even on that side of your car. So <laughs> please tell me how I did that. So wait a minute people would actually come back to you for minor things going on it is amazing in the world today how many things that they want to say is yours i actually had a lady bring in a cadillac that i was doing an oil change on just a regular synthetic oil change got on her change the oil and filter put the new stuff in and then i replaced the sticker in her windshield telling her when her next oil change was due and when i did that i got inside the car but i didn't touch anything Mm -hmm. and when she got the car back she said her window didn't roll down and that was my fault I did not touch the window switch whatsoever, and this is when I started going, you know, some of this footage is actually pretty interesting. So I just started talking to the camera to see how it would turn out. And when I was doing that, I just started posting it just so I would have it out there on the cloud. Cool. And I just got a following, and I didn't really even intend it to be like that, but I'm glad that it is because I do like, you know, being able to post videos and interact with the public like that and answer a lot of questions. And sometimes I do car reviews on there, too. I did an Nissan Sentra recently. Um, I have a guy who follows me around with a camera. I don't just try to DIY it all with a cell phone. We even have a drone now, so we're getting pretty no interesting. Wow. Pretty sophisticated. Yeah. That's exciting. I, you know, we occasionally dream about what a, a thing about cars video presence would look like a TV show of some sort. And we keep brainstorming of ideas, but nothing's really hit the wall yet. And the fact of the matter is, is we need, we need more structure. We need sponsors. We need a, a bunch of other discussions about how it should go. Uh, anyway, that's conversation fodder for another day. Um, one thing I did wanted to throw out on the table was we talked about transmission fluid being nothing other than oil and detergents. Yes. So what do you think about the notion of throwing a quart of transmission fluid into your actual oil crankcase on your way to getting the oil changed? Uh, I think that depends on what you need. Um, for push rod engines, it's a really good way to clean out lifter valleys and things like that. So particularly the engine that I tell people to do this on, the 5.3 Chevy, the 6.0 Chevy, and the 4.8, all of that early LS push rod, especially the ones that they have the notorious lifter tick, if you put a quart of transmission fluid in there and then you drive about 250 miles then you come get your oil change with us your lifter takes going to go down a nine out of ten cases hmm. and i've had that uh, several customers save the money of not having to take the engine apart to do the lifters by just using that trick um, it tends to happen only on sludged up engines if your engine's pretty new or it's pretty clean kind of wasting your money it's not necessary at this point if it's well taken care of it's really if you buy a used truck and it's already Yep. The way to fix that is definitely with that. I've seen that work a lot. I've also heard that filling the crankcase with uh, diesel on your way to getting your oil changed will help do the same thing. Um, my professor when I was in school actually said that. Um, I haven't tried that personally, So, um, but the fact that he said that and everything else he said seems to be working out, I'll, yeah. I'll believe that one. I've but, seen it uh, pumped through a non-running engine to de-sludge it. I mean, this was, a, this was an old flathead Ford that had sat in a field for a while and was so full of sludge you couldn't make out the mm. parts inside. And so the guy put about two gallons of diesel in it and just you know turned it over on the starter for a while and drained it and put more diesel in and kept doing it till it came out clean no kidding yeah yeah diesel's really a lubricant too so it also wouldn't it wouldn't tear anything up i wouldn't imagine but i have personally used the transmission fluid trick so i can speak from that one that that works have you ever heard about the idea that you could pour a quart of transmission fluid into your gas tank 
I have not, and I don't think I would advise that one. There's so many electronics in a modern gas tank involving with your sending unit and your fuel pump that I don't know what that would do. Now, this is just I don't know, so I wouldn't advise. But um, being that transmission fluid is a lot thicker and doesn't quite work the same as gasoline, I don't imagine it would do very good for that. Well, the thing that I heard was that you could dissolve a quart of almost anything into 16 gallons of gas and be okay. And you're now lubricating your engine from the top down um, with that, but... Still. Right. Um, I've You're seen right. somebody put diesel in a gasoline engine and it was okay. So uh-huh. maybe since we were just talking about diesel and transmission fluid both acting as cleaner, maybe, I, I don't know, it's hard yeah. to say without knowing for certain. Right. Well, if any of our listeners have actually done this, please let us know how it went. And if you haven't done it, please don't try this at home until you talk to us first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Definitely don't do that until we know for certain if it's going to do a good thing. So we, we have, a, 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 let's, let's do our daily moment of trivia here. Um, the question for today is... What famous automaker is responsible for designing the Volkswagen Beetle? Um, was it Bavarian Motor Works? Was it Walter P. Chrysler? Was it Henry Ford? Or was it Ferdinand Porsche? And uh, we'll come back to that question at the end of the episode and give the answer. Uh, in the meantime, let's jump back into the rest of our listener questions. We have um, a handful of questions left from our friends and listeners. Uh, Catherine Smith wants to know, why do drivers like backing into parking spaces? And on a related note, why do drivers seem unable to turn their wheels when in reverse? It shouldn't take two to three back and forth to get out of a parking space parallel or otherwise. She says, by the way, I love the show. So thank you, Catherine. We love you. Thank you for listening. Um, and uh, so, yeah, two questions. Why do drivers back into parking spaces? Well, I know a lot of people will say it's easier to pull out. I can understand that in certain situations mm-hmm. where, okay, it's, you know, there's there's a lot of traffic going through, but wouldn't it just be equally as hard to back into it? I don't know. It, I hate it, too. I, it drives me nuts that people. Why does it drive you nuts if someone just wants to back into a parking space? Well, for one, it can take them quite a while to do it. And if you are stuck for whatever reason waiting for this, I think it takes a lot longer for somebody to back into a space and to back out of a space regardless of the reason. And it can be quite annoying. You know, like if you can't open your car door and get out of your car because somebody's backing in or, you know, you just want to leave and you can't because this person is jogging around next to you. I don't know. It. Well, I always back into a parking spot because I have all bigger vehicles. Um, and because of that, I can back in I back in just as fast as I could pull in. I, I am pretty good at that. So I don't take 47 tries to get into the parking space. But you know what I mean? Joe Blow out there takes a long well, time I think to get it de- out there. Well, I think it depends on who you're dealing with because like um, – It does take practice, out, but still. Out yeah. where I live at like the feed stores and stuff, everybody backs up because you're backing up to the sidewalk and then you can drop your tailgate and load stuff, a lot right. easier as well. Yeah. Um, but as far as backing in and getting ready to go, it is faster to leave i've noticed um so like for instance whenever i drive by the police department they all are backed in because when they come back to the station they have time but when they're leaving they're leaving in a hurry and they just want to go so i have noticed that as well so maybe it's just a matter of convenience um to me it really doesn't matter it's easier for me to back in because of the giant mirrors on the side of the truck i can see if i'm going to hit your car or not real easy (laughs) i think whether you take a lot of time to get in or to get out is just a matter of personal taste in the trade-off Sure. Yeah. Like, is it worth it to spend the time up front so you can get out a little more easly? And not everybody's going to see that the same way. Right. 
I mean, you know, if you if you're good at backing in and you don't hit the cars on either side of you, yeah, it makes more sense to me to always back in because parking lots are already dangerous places anyway. Maybe it's better to be in a forward gear when you're trying to leave. And I read some book years ago, some novel in which there was a character who was, you know, of the World War II generation. He drove a Lincoln. He always wore dress shirts and he always backed into spaces as a matter of character. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I wonder what book that was. Uh, I, I've still got it. I can't recall the title offhand, but I'll I'll tell you later if right. I remember it. Right. The backing into spaces too mentioned in a parking lot, like you know, if you're at Walmart or wherever you're at, if you back in and somebody comes across from the other side and hits you, they're only hitting your back bumper rather than crushing your radiator, which actually happened to my fiance. She oh. got a radiator crushed because somebody came across and hit it. So with that, it's also a safety option too. Am I picturing that wrong? You're backed in, so your front end is hit. Oh, they're you're pulling. You're backed they're pulling in, in, and they're pulling through, you. and they hit you in the back instead of hitting you in the front. I'm thinking yeah. the part, uh, the parking spots around next to you. Sorry, yeah, I was no, trying to not visualize. A, not around that. you, just if they come through the back, if they tap you in the back bumper. Most back bumpers, oh, it's just yep. cracked the plastic. It's fine, but if they hit you in the nose and it goes through your grill, well, now yep. you're now you're having a really bad day. I I'd be curious, too, if backing into spaces has increased with the prevalence of uh, reverse cameras on cars. Oh, definitely. Because, yeah, I've noticed with definitely. my rental cars, they make it, so, it makes it so much easier Painless to back thing. them in funny places. Exactly. You know? yeah. Well, with Ford's new technology where you push the button, it'll take you back in there and backing a trailer, oh, yeah. too, with them. Right. That, yeah, yeah. I think the manufacturers are going to keep going towards that. You don't have to do anything to back up. You just push a button. Exactly. Yeah. So the other Catherine Smith question was, why do drivers seem, and I, I don't know if we can answer this question, but she says, why do drivers seem un, unable to turn their wheels when in reverse? It should not take two to three back and forths to get out of a parking space, parallel or otherwise. That seems to bleed in with the other question. It does bleed well, in with the other question, but it's like anything else. Well, I see a practice. lot of folks who do a lot, yeah, a lot of little small angle turns. They don't seem to realize how far they can actually turn their wheels. Right. Well, it depends on the car, too. Mm. I mean, some cars don't turn well and some turn awesome and no but some will back up about six inches and turn their wheel about three degrees then just keep doing that I all mean, day and they have know? five feet behind them but they don't <laughs> yeah. realize it because they can't clearly yeah. they they never learn where their cars are right i think that's yeah. because they don't know the size of their car exactly. yeah. right i've i've stood behind somebody going you've got six feet keep going and yeah. yeah they don't know where the limits are in their right. cars so they can't right yeah. but as far as why they wouldn't do that in both directions i think in reverse everybody's a little more nervous because you're yeah. going the wrong way basically right. in your brain you know oh, I've <laughs> got to go this way now I'm going to go slower and more cautiously right. and you're kind of backwards you know you're yeah. right to left when you're making the car right move. so with that I think that might make people hesitate so might that might be, be it too yeah. but I don't know if there's an official answer to that so I, our friend Bodhi who we should probably invite on the show sometime and I'm sitting here popping this microphone I'm sorry uh, Bodhi asks he says, I think listeners would like to hear the difference between the three generations of Hemis and why old timers can't really consider the modern Hemi a real Hemi. Mm. And real is in quotes. Thus, they call it a semi-Hemi. So how do we qualify, quantify first three generations of Hemis? And apparently the last one is referred to as a semi-Hemi by old timers? Well, basically, you had a generation made in the 50s, I think 51 to 58. Then you had another one made from 64 to 71, and that's kind of the, the more famous one that all the hot rodders love. Then you've got the current generation that's been made since 2003. Now, we don't want to get too far in the weeds here. We could spend several episodes on the weeds of this, but basically, 
the essence of it, the reason they call it a hemi, is because it has a hemispherical combustion chamber. Right. Basically like a half dome shaped hole in the cylinder head that the valves poke down into and that the piston moves up toward. Uh, this is, you know, has pluses and minuses for various things, but one of the things it enables is for a cross-flow head design where you know, your intake and exhaust gases are going the same direction instead of making a U-turn in the head like they would in an engine that's got the intake and exhaust on the same side. Like exactly. a Jeep Straight Six or some right. of the other Chrysler engines. Or a lot of old, you know, Datsuns and you know, many, many old, you know, inline engines. Um, and a lot of a lot of engines out there have used hemispherical combustion chambers. This is no special Chrysler magic. I mean, MGs, Alfa Romeos, BMW motorcycles, almost anybody who's made an engine has done a hemispherical combustion chamber at some point. Hmm. Uh, so they're really quite common. Now, as far as the Chryslers go, what I what I found out on this when I was reading about it was really two kind of two possible answers. One was that the the one they're calling the Hemi, which by the way is a Chrysler trademark. Mm-hmm. Chrysler has trademarked the term Hemi. Uh, that that one is not so much purely hemispherical anymore. That there are a couple of spots in that combustion chamber design where they've added a little metal on the sides, basically just to improve the flow characteristics. Uh, and so the old timers say, well, it ain't purely hemispherical, so it ain't a Hemi. Right. Uh, Don Garlitz has in fact joined that camp. I read he's you know, he's making. But the thing is, you know, this like with anything, like with any kind of engineering or technology, things improve and advance over time. As the more they learn, the more things change to you know get little advantages out. And a lot of you know cylinder heads now use what's you know what you could call a a, a bihemispherical design. Where it's like two little hemispheres kind of Siamese onto each other or you know little extensions and things kind of peanut shaped combustion chambers right it's all in the name of you know getting more power and you know less fumes out of the fuel so so what do you think the current hemi is a semi-hemi uh by strict geometric definitions i guess so maybe not even semi but partially Andrew? I think that it's just a completely different engine when you think about it because, yeah. you know, the old uh, Hemis, uh, from what I've heard, I haven't had to work on one yet. They're kind of not coming around in regular shops anymore. Mm. But um, they had a top-down single spark plug. And uh, now all the Hemis I've worked on have twin spark plugs. So you have right. a twin ignition as well. And also you have so much more. You don't have carburetors on these newer Hemis, obviously. Um, there's so much more going on that I think it should just be considered a new engine with the old ideas in mind. And the, well, the other the other the other side of it too is they're making some other V V eights that they haven't actually branded as Hemi's, but people are calling semi Hemi's, or would that be semi Hemi? Uh, but they're being referred to as such because they borrow some things from the Hemi. Well, I mean, right. Hemi at that point becomes just a marketing point and not necessarily yeah. anything oh, descriptive yeah. about the engine. And that's pretty much what I think it's coming down to mm-hmm. because they're talking, yeah. they got the 5.7 Hemi that everybody knows about. And now I think they're calling the 6.4 Hemi too, right? That they're putting so, in their yeah. new 2,500 Ram because they're going with a big gas. And they, uh, it's just, it's also a Hemi. They're just kind of, yeah. oh, it's got a Hemi. It's a marketing point. I think it's kind of lost its namesake though. Back when I had a wheezy little, you know, BMW boxer twin that made all of you know, 50 horsepower, I, I'd like to, I, you know, I would, it, it sounded like a sewing machine when I revved it. I go, yeah, it's got a Hemi in it. Because <laughs> technically it did. Right. That's too funny. Oh, yeah. I wasn't aware that the hemispherical combustion chamber was oh, yeah. not uniquely Mopar. Oh, not by any stretch okay. of the imagination. No. All right. They didn't even invent it. Right. No. All right. Our last user question uh, is. I feel so used. <laughs> user question. Listener question. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Poli again asks, he says, some car brands have great resale value and others don't. But if you're buying used, the ones with not so good resale value can give you a lot more car for the money. Which way do you want to go? And I'm like, okay, that's actually a pretty good question. Becca? 
Oh, my turn. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I got one. Uh, yeah, it's I, I'm not the kind of person that I sit there and weigh pros and cons. I go out there knowing what I'm looking for. Right. So it's. Uh, so. He does have a point. There are cars that have great resale value for a reason, and so those prices are kind of high. And there are other cars that don't have great resale value, but you get a, a lot more Supply bells and whistles for the money. Demand, so. well, and, you know. Yeah, when you look at the way the market works, I mean, let's take two cars that are basically the same, a, a Camry and a Lexus LS300. Those are both sedans made by Toyota, but the Lexus is worth less than the Camry in the aftermarket. And I think the reason for that is luxury cars depreciate faster. And the reason for that is because if you're looking for a luxury car, people think new. And the old luxury cars might be nothing wrong with them, but they're just who's going to buy it? I mean, that's the problem. Who's who is the buyer? So because the people out there trying to sell these are trying to find a buyer, any buyer, right. that one buyer they have can demand whatever price point they want, and they're probably going to get it, or the guy's not going to sell his car. Right. So because of that, you can get a car with a lot more bells and whistles for less, just because how many buyers are really looking for that car. But as far as resale in general, I mean, you look at a, a Chrysler or Dodge Intrepid and you look at a Camry, there's an obvious difference right there. And I think that the, the used car market has kind of sorted out their buyers between this is a good car and this is a car that there's a thousand of out here that right. are just sitting here having birthdays mm -hmm. on car lots, not selling. Right. And uh, that affects it as well. And if, you know, if the, if the car with a low resale value does everything you need, then score. Exactly. Right. If you can get an $800 beater that runs, drives, steers, and stops, and it'll keep you cool in the hot Georgia summers here, that's yeah. definitely the way yeah. to go for it. Exactly. That's what I'm looking for. If anybody out there in the listener world has a, has a beat on such a car, I need an $800 beater that has an air conditioning in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was our uh, last available listener question. As, as, as always, please send us your questions and your comments on our Facebook page or via our website, thethingaboutcars.com. Uh, I want to... Um, do our trivia question and then um, maybe wrap up this one episode a little bit early today. Uh, the trivia question was, what famous automaker is responsible for designing the Volkswagen Beetle? Was it Ferdinand Porsche, Henry Ford, Walter P. Chrysler, or Bavarian Motor Works? Porsche. Porsche. That is correct. <laughs> that one was a, a gimme for everybody on the table. Not his most luxurious design or his fastest design. Ferdinand Porsche uh, uh, did, in fact, design the Volkswagen Beetle, which was originally contracted by anyone? The Hitler. German government. Hitler. Hitler. Yeah. Hitler at the time, yeah. the German government at the time. Um, and this did come before his performance cars. Yes. As far as Porsche, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, as a bonus trivia question for this episode, um, how much horsepower did the four, first Porsche 911 have? Was it 90 horsepower, 130, 180, or 210? Oh, geez, I don't know. 90. Mm, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking 90. The original Porsche 911, 911, introduced in 1964, boasted an impressive 130 horsepower oh, okay. at 6,100 RPM yeah. and a top speed of about 130 miles per hour. That's pretty high revving for those years. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. By comparison, the 2005 Porsche 911 Turbo S has a 40, 444 horsepower and a top track speed of 190 miles an hour. <laughs> Jeez. That's overkill. It is overkill. But people do get them and track them. And Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, so. yeah. Cool. I think that's uh, all we have time for today. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening and for supporting us. Uh, we can, you can find us on thethingaboutcars.com or on Facebook at The Thing About Cars. We hope to see you at an upcoming car show, specifically the Atlanta, uh, the, the Summit Motorama happening at Atlanta Motor, Motor Speedway. And I think this episode should air in time for the C5 car show that's happening at the Brookhaven uh, Cherry Blossom Festival. Uh, please look us up and find us there. In the meantime, stay safe. We'll see you soon. Bye. See ya. Bye, y'all. Thank you.
thank you for listening. This has been The Thing About Cars. We'll see you on the road. Thank you.